Hello fellow survivors, and welcome to another episode of At The End Of The Line, a rail tour of post-apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur escologist Richard Oliver. For those listening for the first time, perhaps you have managed to couple together a working radio out of assorted electrical junk or something like that, this is essentially a travelogue of my train journey around post-apocalyptic England, and I'll also bring you news, updates and whatever else might be useful. In the last episode I escaped from the insane English literature professor Jonathan Castlebridge, who was convinced Sophia was the protagonist for the story of the world. Sophia, Vasco and I made it back to the train, but Vasco's team of cultural treasure seekers was wiped out. There was also a somewhat personal aspect to the events of Castlebridge. In the end, what had saved mine and Sophia's lives was Castlebridge's belief that we were in love and apparently he was a bit of a romantic. Long time listeners will know I do not like to discuss my personal life, but there has been a great deal of buzz around this, with most of the correspondence received since the last episode about this issue. All I will say in the matter is that Sophia and I are friends, with the added complexity that she saved my life numerous times. While I have seen Sophia several times since the incident, as we were in the middle of watching Faulty Towers, and no amount of awkwardness could warrant depriving her of that. We have not spoken about the matter. Moving on from this issue, after leaving the ruins of Lockton University, the train headed south, and we were all surprised when we came to a rather sudden stop. I had been reading the manuscript I had taken from Castlebridge that detailed his experiences, those of the people he met and all kinds of things he thought worthy of writing about. It ran into thousands of pages and I was determined to read it all. I have to admit that I was struggling with Castlebridge's rather baroque and convoluted writing style and I had the feeling that you had to be a professor of English literature with decades of academic work behind you to fully appreciate the manuscript. I had given my assistant Knox the task of looking up the definitions of words I didn't know, academics I'd never heard of, and literary terms I was half sure Castlebridge had made up, and it would be fair to say the sudden stop was a welcome diversion. I put the manuscript down and left my carriage and made my way towards the front of the train. Normally news filters down from the front, and while sometimes this can lead to a rumour mill of incorrect information, you could usually get the gist about what was going on. I had just made it to the dining car when an alarm went off throughout the train. I have mentioned before about the dozens of different alarms and sirens that we have on board the train, all with their own specific meaning, and I couldn't place this one at first, but a moment later the train windows turned opaque and there was a loud click of the, all the doors locking. This alarm was for quicksand. Quicksand was a thing that got inside your mind and either took complete control or heavily influenced you. Quicksand was different to a physical infection or a typical parasite because it wasn't anything tangible. It could be a song or even just a tune, a picture, a phrase, and as such it was very easily spread. There were a set of procedures for dealing with this, but for most of us there was nothing to do but wait. It was called quicksand because you would be quite happily walking along when it caught you by surprise and it was too late to do anything by the time you realised what was going on. Fortunately, I found myself trapped in the dining car, which if you want to get trapped in one carriage, that's the one to do it in. I ordered a cocktail and waited for the situation to be resolved. 
The unofficial rules of the dining corps persisted even in situations like this, and there was no conversation. The people there ate, drank, read, played solitaire, or practiced magical incarnations as the mood took them. I listened out for gunfire, but heard none, which was reassuring as often with these quicksands that was the only solution. During my fourth cocktail, please use your own imagination to judge how much time had passed, there was another click as the doors were unlocked and the windows returned to their normal state. I peered outside and could see what looked like a large billboard next to the tracks. It was engulfed in flames. I left the train and walked down to the group of crew, soldiers and passengers who were stood nearby. I passed the soldier heading back to the train, a flamethrower in his hands. Again, this was standard procedure to destroy whatever was causing the quicksand. Some of the billboard's message was still visible. A generic but pleasant looking cartoon of a small town. Some of the text was missing, but I could see the words come to and then the place name was missing. This was quicksand? I asked to anyone who could answer and apparently it was. Often quicksand was a fairly innocuous thing. Not some ominous voice message accompanied by a spinning hypnotising disc, which made it all the harder to deal with. The captain told me the engineer had seen the billboard and brought the train to a sudden stop as he tried to work out how to get to the place advertised. Several others had went to investigate the problem and the same had happened to them, and thankfully some cautious person had pressed the quicksand along. The captain wore a distinctive pair of goggles that I have seen her wear on similar situations, and was supposedly a defence against quicksand. The human mind is very good at filling in gaps and making sense of something. The goggles distorted vision just enough that the complete quicksand could not be viewed, but the brain could fill in the gaps and still understand what was written without being controlled by the quicksand. Frankly, I wasn't happy trusting my free will to the goggles. The captain removed her goggles and rubbed her eyes. We have to investigate this further, she said, which shocked me. The captain has a wonderful grasp of her priorities, and that tends to mean anything that might damage her wonderful train is ranked a very low priority. Incidentally, the lives of the crew and her passengers are also low on this list. But the captain said something about new central government authority protocol on dealing with quicksand when discovered, rather than just leaving it to the next person that comes along to sort out, which has rather been the captain's motto in such matters in the past. In the next few hours, the captain and other authority figures on board decided what to do, and it was fortunate that what they decided was pretty much what we had been doing anyway. We would continue our journey working on the assumption that this town couldn't be too far away, and later the same day the train set off again. We encountered several billboards along the way, and after the captain looked at them herself, using her goggles of course, she had them destroyed. Then we came to a town with a large railway sign proclaiming we had arrived in Corcaster. Despite the Roman sound and name, it was clearly a very new town, and not one that I was familiar with at all. I must say I was slightly unnerved by the fact that even though we had the quicksand situation under control, we had done exactly what they had wanted. We had come to Corcaster. I had arranged to go out into the town with Sophia, while other parties set out to explore the town as well, and the captain insisted anyone who left the train had to wear the special goggles. They are certainly very odd things and substantially alter your vision, with a lot of fine detail being lost but I suppose the alternative was worse. My mind went back to the time when virtually the entire train had fallen under the power of monsters who hid in the defence mechanisms of our unconscious minds, and how close I had come to dying then, and was determined to remain in control.
correspondence. Miko from the Infernal Tower asks, Society has changed so much, and I always considered myself a very polite person. Are there any guides to help us navigate post-apocalyptic social problems? As a matter of fact, there are several. Perhaps the most famous, or infamous, is Anna Kandare's blog, Which Fork Do I Use? A Modern Cannibal's Dining Guide, which is exactly as horrific as it sounds, and deals with any number of manners-related issues relevant to cannibalism, ranging from what is a fair way to choose who should be eaten amongst a group of survivors, to what you should say if someone places their elbows on the table during a meal. Kandare firmly believes that if circumstances have driven people to cannibalism, there is no reason to abandon good manners and polite behaviour. Hopefully though, Miko, your situation is not quite so bleak, and I would recommend Chloe Bissett and Joris Backer's podcast, Respectable Survivors, of which I am a listener. Really, this is an indispensable guide to how you should behave and what social rules have come into existence since the apocalypse. But often they make reasoned judgments where there isn't a consensus. My favourite episode discussed how to be a good host when 90% of your visitors really just want to kill you and steal your possessions. But I also loved the episode where they talked about what you should wear to the new social events we now have, such as blood sacrifices, which they would suggest lounge suits are appropriate, as opposed to the more formal white tie functions like the christening of a warlord's son and heir. Natsuko from Sapora asks, what are the positives and negatives of immortality? A rather unique opportunity has been presented to me recently and I'm deciding whether or not to take it. Okay, first off Natsuko, ask for a contract and have a lawyer look over it. I am being completely serious. Oh, they may claim it's all mystical and spooky, but if in 50 years time you complain that immortality is actually a curse, they will laugh at you for not having done this in the first place. You need to know exactly what you're getting. Does immortality mean eternal youth? Does it mean that while you won't age, if someone cuts your head off, you're dead? Will immortality just mean eternal servitude? Will your immortality be predicated on carrying out immoral acts? And if so, just how immoral are these acts? But let's assume you go through all of this and broadly speaking, you're happy with the deal. What then? Immortality will mean that you will see everyone you know grow old and die. But there is no end to loneliness or exhaustion. You will be left behind by society as it advances, but you stay the same person. Always out of place, never belonging. That said, I do it in a heartbeat. You don't die. People like to act all philosophical around this issue, and act all deep and thoughtful. But everyone wants this, even if they don't realise it. So like I say, check the terms and conditions, but otherwise, congratulations, I'm really very jealous. Finally, Adrian from, well, he doesn't know where exactly, asks, I currently live in the burning wastelands, and have a nice life of scavenging and even a little farming, although attacks by the blade warriors are getting worse. Recently I started to get radio transmissions from the Central Government Authority inviting me to come to, into their territory. I am dubious, as I have heard I would have to pay taxes. Is this true, and if so, why should I join? First off Adrian, you sound like a far more capable and resilient person than me. I was positively running to the welcoming arms to CGA. Right then, taxes. Yes, people pay taxes, and to some people who have never paid taxes before, that can seem like a bit of a swindle. But you get so much for your taxes, you get civilization. 
again, that may not sound like much to those who've never had it, but you get electricity and medicine and telephones, and listen, you get people. People who don't try and kill you. People who you don't have to be afraid of. People you can talk to and work with and help you. And yes, there will be some people who aren't quite so nice, but none of these blade warriors I can assure you of that. It's no secret I'm a big fan of the CGA, especially when compared to the alternative, but I really do believe it's the best option for everyone. The streets surrounding the train station were filled with orderly rows of empty shops and offices, but the further away from the station we became, the worse condition things seemed to be in, and within 30 minutes it resembled so many apocalypse-ravaged towns we had seen. There were burned out buildings, overturned cars, discarded weapons, the typical stuff. I was getting increasingly anxious and couldn't help but think the bright, happy billboards were a very poor representation of the town. Sophia stopped me and pointed at a billboard. There was no way of knowing whether it was quicksand or not without removing the goggles, and it's possible it was just an ordinary billboard. But I suspected it wasn't due to its unusual nature. It seemed to be advertising a box, a black cube with white edges and a removable lid. The sort of box you might put a present in. But it wasn't the contents of the box that were being advertised, just the box itself. The billboard did not explain what the box did, but used various compelling adjectives to demonstrate its value. I was not sold on the box. Soon though, we noticed more billboards, all of them about this box. Sophia pointed out that the billboard stood out pristine and untouched in areas otherwise devastated, like they had been specifically spared from the violence. We were interrupted from studying the billboards by what I can only describe as a roar. A crowd of people all cheering at once, but in a most sinister fashion. Sophia and I walked through the ruined streets as the sounds grew louder, and stopped at the edge of a barely standing house. Beyond it was a great space that had been cleared out, buildings smashed up and used to create a large makeshift pyramid. And at the top sat the box which had been so heavily promoted. The people surrounding the pyramid seemed beyond happy that they had the box, but really it wasn't their happiness you noticed first. It would probably be the weapons, or the elaborate and sinister masks they wore, or that many were covered in blood. I had seen plenty of this before, wild, brutal societies given over to their worst excesses, and usually committing every atrocity imaginable. A man was climbing to the top of the pyramid. And as he neared the top, he grabbed the box and raised it high to another outburst from the people crowding round the pyramid. He was a surprisingly slender man, tall, wearing a tattered collection of clothes, a large cleaver hung from his belt, and his face was covered in a white oval mask with streaks of what could have been blood, and he seemed to be their leader. He put the box down and removed his mask, and addressed the crowd. It was hard to understand everything he said, and some words seemed to be very recent colloquialisms. But from what I could gather, they were celebrating the capture of the box. And while he was hardly Cicero or Churchill, it was undeniable that he had a magnetic hold over the crowd, and I dreaded to think what he might direct them to do. Then one by one the crowd started climbing up the pyramid, and once they reached the box, they would pick it up for a few seconds and then move on. Some raised it high and cheered in triumph, 
Others nervously touched it, and for some others it was like they were touching a religious relic, overcome by evangelical ecstasy. As interesting an anthropological discovery this was, I did not feel safe and wanted to get out of there. While this group of men and women were fearsome, I doubted they could stop the captain from eliminating all the quicksand. Maybe then, without their constant reinforcement, they would go back to normal, assuming that this behaviour was caused by the quicksand. I was about to whisper to Sophia that it was time to leave when I saw another group approaching the pyramid, and while I didn't know who they were, I guessed that they too wanted the box. While their aesthetic was broadly the same as the first gang, they were clearly distinct. They wore overalls covered in brightly coloured paint, converse trainers and gas masks. Sophia dragged me into the house we had been hiding behind, and that's where we stayed while the two sides fought. Zavia kept a close eye on the door, her pistol constantly pointed at it, whereas I crouched at the other side of the room, just trying not to listen to the vicious sounds of fighting. As mentioned in a previous episode, history is not what it once was. Gone are the days of a single, linear timeline. These days history seems to be in a state of flux, and different timelines bleed into others. I often get asked about trivial historical details, such as the fate of Napoleon Bonaparte, who invented television, and why do I keep saying dinosaurs are extinct? Well, one topic perhaps more than any other keeps coming up again and again, North America. I'm sure many of you will have listened to my previous podcast, The 13 Colonies by Zeppelin, which obviously discussed many features of the continent. First, I shall lay out my understanding of North America. This should not be construed as me saying it is the correct version. Understand that each viewpoint is equally valid, each reality equally real. European colonisation of the continent began in the late 1400s, and in the next few centuries Spain, England and France all developed sizeable territories on the continent, originally on the east coast and then hidden into the interior. By the 1700s many of the colonists chafed under the rule of their distant overlords. In the second half of the 18th century, when Europe seemed consumed by revolution and rebellion, many of these colonies rose up and demanded their freedom. The English territories were successful and formed the country of the 13 colonies, a name they carried with pride. Inspired by their neighbours, both the Spanish and French colonies successfully rebelled. What followed was a rare moment of European cooperation. It was agreed that the European powers would prevent their former colonies from taking over the whole continent. New lands would be settled, but they would be separate countries, leading to the Great North American Bonanza, where dozens of new countries were created. At its peak, North America contained almost 300 separate nations. Before the apocalypse started, it was down to somewhere between 70 and 80. There was an immense diversity in the religion, political philosophy and ethnic makeup of these countries, with every imaginable form of government having been tried somewhere. In the 20th century, the often difficult and sometimes violent relationships between these countries had stabilised into something more like healthy competition, centred around the four major powers of the 13 colonies, the Republic of Greater California, the United Northern Territories and the Rocky Mountain States. As such, this edition of Who's On Board, my guest is Natasha Klein, author of These United States, a study of alternate North American nations a woman who has conducted a great deal of research on the known differing realities, 
including interviewing people who have suddenly found themselves in unfamiliar timelines. Good morning, Tasha. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Richard. Now, on my show, we've talked a lot about alternative realities and timelines. Indeed, on a previous episode, I looked at a few different timelines. A reality where Germany won World War II, where the Roman Empire fell in the 20th century, and all this stuff. It's fascinating, seeing the different directions the world might have gone. Your book is focused on North America. Yes, although depending on the reality, I discuss wider world issues and what happened to other countries. For example, there are several realities where the Europeans settled in North America, conquering their old homelands, or some of the bigger wars where North America played a crucial role. I think I should point out Natasha is not actually from our reality, from our timeline. The North America I described is not your version. Could you please describe your North America? My North America split into two countries, the United States of America and Canada. Imagine a line running east to west, splitting North America in two. Essentially, the lower half is the U.S. The U.S.? Oh, sorry, the United States. It goes by USA, U.S., or sometimes just America. I was a citizen of the United States of America. And it goes from the East Coast to the West Coast, so that's what, nearly 3,000 miles? More if you include Alaska and Hawaii. Hawaii? Where is that? It is in the Pacific Ocean, another 2,000 miles from the West Coast. That's staggering. In our reality, one of the key tenets of European politics was to prevent the 13 colonies from expanding like that. It's pretty much the only thing everyone agreed on. Wars were fought to prevent this happening. And you're telling me that as well as spanning the continent, they have islands that are thousands of miles away as well? Absolutely. Hawaii is just a state like any other. So what was this USA like? It is a modern, liberal democracy founded in 1782 that kept expanding westward, adding more and more territory to the country. By the beginning of the 20th century, westward expansion had been completed. You know, we're a big country, very diverse. Lots of wilderness, but at the same time, pioneers in science. We make more films than the rest of the world combined. And what was your country's place in the world? <laughs> well, the 20th century is sometimes called the American century. The U.S. became the richest, most powerful country in the world. Politically, it was the most important. Culturally, it dominated. Well, what about this Canada? Canada, with an A at the end. Canada? That's it. It's complicated. When the 13th colonies rebelled, they remained loyal. Ah, so that part still belongs to England? No, it's an independent country where it would be United Kingdom, not England. What do you mean, the United Kingdom? Mm, well, England is a part of the United Kingdom rather than just by itself. Wait, wait, wait. Maybe we should just keep the focus on North America. So, Canada, right? What were relations like between them and the USA? After some initial problems, very good. So we have your reality, where continent-spanning superpower is the dominant military, political, and cultural force in the world. My reality, where North America is split into dozens of small nations. I mean, frankly, your reality seems completely impossible, but I suppose mine must seem equally odd. So what other realities do we have? Norse America. Norse America? Yes, Norse America. In some realities, the first Europeans to reach North America were not the Spanish in the 15th century, but Vikings in the 10th century. 
I know that sounds unlikely, but they did. In most realities, the settlements all failed. It was too far away using the ships they had then. But with a few, they survived longer. In one reality, they became the dominant power in North America for hundreds of years, maintained their Norse Viking heritage, and were still raiding Western Europe from their bases in North America until the late 19th century. They were absolutely terrifying. 200 million Vikings, armed with rifles and attacking with ironclad warships. Yes, they sound awful for everyone else anyway. And after my research, there seems to be a fair few dystopias, but a handful of utopias, or something close anyway. Wow, utopias are rare. Yes, in North America, they seem to usually be focused around technology, either fixing all the problems in the case of a utopia or causing them. In one utopia that was centered around California, there was no disease, no crime, no poverty. People led long, happy, fulfilled lives, flying around on jetpacks and eating food in a pill form. I tried hard to find the dark side. Often, so-called utopias are only for certain sections of society. With some poor underclass stuck with the problems, but none of my research turned anything like this up. There are some realities where the European takeover of the continent was halted by indigenous people whose civilizations continue to thrive. Indeed, one of the utopias I've studied is such a civilization. Now, in your reality, there was no apocalypse, is that right? Yes. In my reality, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say things were perfect. There were wars, pollution, terrorism, but no zombies, nuclear wastelands, or kaiju. So how did you find yourself in this reality? I was on a plane flying from Los Angeles to New York. I used to work in advertising and traveled a lot. I closed my eyes, fell asleep. A few minutes later, I woke up thinking we had gone through some turbulence. But people were different. My clothes were different. Hell, I was on a freaking Zeppelin. So you left the reality in which the USA was the dominant power, where you were rich and successful, and woke up in one where the world was ending and your country didn't even exist. It was hard adjusting. The government helped. I mean, the stuff isn't common, but it happens. I was worried people would think I was crazy. I was worried I was crazy. But after I settled down and realized getting back home wasn't necessarily going to happen, I began researching realities, interviewing people, looking at the documents and the media that crept into this reality from others. Really, once you start looking, you realize there's a ton of this stuff. And now you're on a train exploring England. Yes. For my next book, I was thinking writing about the United Kingdom. There's that name again. I just can't get my head around it. In my reality, it went by Great Britain. Seriously? Great Britain? That sounds a bit arrogant. I think you're trying to make me sound foolish on my own show. Well, it's been great having you as a guest, and I look forward to your next book. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure. After a while, I dared to look out the window and saw the pyramid. Two people had been left to guard the box while the rest of the gang took part in the fighting. It was then that I noticed someone crawling up the side of the pyramid. She too was wearing overalls and a gas mask, but she was clearly a child. I gestured to Sophia and I pointed to the girl. Slowly she continued her climb, as yet undetected by the guards, and she was nearly at the top. 
The guards were dangerous looking men, one armed with a baseball bat, the other a sledgehammer, and they seemed very eager to kill someone, but most of their attention was on the fighting and not the box. The girl reached the top of the pyramid and stretched out for the box when one of the guards turned round to face the girl. His moment of surprise allowed her to grab the box and turn to run. He swung his bat and caught her on the back and sent her tumbling down the pyramid with the box. Zofia leapt through the open window and ran towards the girl, and not knowing what else to do, I followed her. The man armed with the baseball bat reached the girl. She wrapped herself around the box and waited for the terrible blow from the bat, but instead Zofia shot him five times. She turned to me. Get the girl out of here, she said. Amazingly, the man armed with the baseball bat was still on his feet, swaying slightly. His weapon had fallen to the ground, and Zofia cracked him in the face with the butt of her pistol, knocking him down. I grabbed the girl by the wrist and tried to pull her away, but she clung to the box, refusing to let it go. Alright, alright, bring it, I said. I turned to look at Sophia, who was struggling with the man armed with a sledgehammer, who now that I could see him close up, looked terrifying. He was stripped to the waist, which revealed a collection of ugly scars and poorly spelled tattoos. He wore a red wooden mask with nails hammered through it, and was yelling something unintelligible as he tried to crush Sophia's head with his weapon. I have asked Sophia about her proficiency in fighting people far bigger and stronger than her, and basically, she thinks everyone born in the 20th century is spoiled and weak, even those who have survived the apocalypse. Sophia's life in late 18th and early 19th century war-torn Europe seems to have prepared her for just about anything. Sophia suddenly let go of the sledgehammer, jumped back and drew her sabre. She cut a deep gash down his chest and then ran him through. Unfortunately, the gunshots had attracted the attention of the two gangs, who no longer seemed concerned with fighting each other. The girl tried to run back to her group, but I grabbed her by the arm. They'll kill you, I said, but she didn't seem to care. We won the box, she shouted at me through the gas mask. Sophia pushed her way through. Come with us, and you can keep the box all for yourself, she said. The girl's eyes lit up at this, and she nodded. We ran away from the pyramid, closely trailed by the two gangs. It wasn't long before I could feel my legs aching and my lungs burning and I began to fall behind. Stupidly I looked over my shoulder at the quickly closing in gang members, which only slowed me down. We ran round the corner into another street and ran into a wall of soldiers. Our soldiers. They quickly let us through their lines. What's going on? I asked Sophia, but it was the captain who answered. Don't worry Richard, I'm taking charge of the situation. The captain turned back to the soldiers. Contact! A soldier yelled as the first gang members made it around the corner. Fire at will, the captain yelled back. There must have been several hundred people chasing us, and as soon as they were in sight, the soldiers fired. Whether it was just their momentum or their crazy desire for the box, they just kept coming. Two lines of soldiers with heavy duty automatic weapons made short work of a gang armed with baseball bats and kitchen knives. Eventually though, they had had enough and fled. I looked down the street at the dead bodies and felt sick and turned back. The girl was still clutching the box tightly and seemingly entirely oblivious to the destruction and death around her, looking at the box like it was everything. The captain approached us and smiled. So this is what all the fuss is about, she said and put her hand on the box. Where are your goggles? asked Sophia. She was right. The captain wasn't wearing any. Neither were any of the soldiers. The captain didn't respond, but she put another hand on the box and slowly tried to pull it away from the girl, 
but she wouldn't let it go. So the captain yanked it from her roughly, knocking the girl over. Sophia objected and grabbed the captain by her jacket, and suddenly a dozen guns were trained on her. For a second it looked like she was going to try and fight, but sanity prevailed and Sophia let go and stepped back, her hands in the air. The girl was angrily objecting, but I tried to calm her down, not wanting to find out what would happen if the captain saw her as a threat. I didn't know how, but a look at the captain and many others have been infected by the quicksand. We'll leave it there for this episode, with perhaps me and Sophia being the only people in the whole town unaffected. At the End of the Line was written and performed by Richard Oliver. Holly Richer is our producer and editor. Find her on Twitter at AllRightBarbag. A-L-R-I-G-H-T-B-A-W-B-A-G-G. In this episode, Natasha Klein was played by Lena Scott. Find Lena on Twitter at Lena758. Our theme music is by Chip Michael. Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash Chip Michael. Chip is also part of the Tales of Sage and Savon podcast, which I highly recommend. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at PostApocPodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, and make urgent pleas for help should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. For more information on the show, please go to our website at the end of the line podcast dot squarespace dot com.